0: everyone and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight and our guest today is Dr. Raymond Moody. He's the best-selling author of Life After Life and many other books and the groundbreaking scholar who coined the term near-death experience. The concept of the near-death experience, you know one's life flashing before one's eyes, seeing a white light at the end of the tunnel and encountering loved ones on the other side, is familiar to most of us but many don't know that Raymond Moody is the man responsible for introducing this phenomenon to the mainstream and, in the process, completely changing our views on death and dying. Today, we get to hear directly from Dr. Moody about his newly published memoir, Paranormal, My Life in Pursuit of the Afterlife, and how the thin line between the living and the deceased became his life's work. Welcome, Raymond. I'm so delighted to have you with us.
1: And I am just delighted to be here. This is great. We had a nice conversation beforehand, so uh, earlier. So I am just uh, really uh, so honored, really, and grateful that you would uh, you would talk with me about this.
0: Well, your book was just absolutely fast a fascinating window on what I might say. I, you know, I hope you're not blushing. Is an ex- extraordinary personality. Um, well,
1: yes, I think I am. <laughs> I would eccentric is the word that I would apply to myself, and I'm happy with that designation. And I have a little
0: people are so boring. Uh,
1: I have a little uh, adopted Blackfeet Indian daughter. We adopted her at the moment of birth, literally. Uh, And she's following along in my footsteps, exactly. She's uh, very, very eccentric, (laughs) (laughs) and and delightfully so, in her case.
0: Well, why don't we just jump in? Your entire life has been devoted to understanding what comes next. What set you on
1: that path? Well, what really set me on that path was that I have essentially no... Childhood background or emotional, uh, context within which to think about this question of life after death. Because, uh, my dad was not religious. When I was a kid, we didn't go to church. My dad had been a, um, a World War II surgeon and medic and professional military officer and that generation, you know, they didn't talk, but it, Gradually dawned on me that he must have been through some horrific things. And one way that played out in our lives were that I just didn't, uh, we didn't go to church, and I was not raised a religious person. Instead, I built my first telescope at age seven and um, still just love astronomy. So I, um, but in in high school, I got interested in philosophy. So, but I went away to the University of Virginia at age sixty-two uh intending to be an astronomy uh person. And uh in my first philosophy class, the first few days at, at the University of Virginia, I in reading Plato's Republic was electrifying to me. And um Plato to this day is is still my hero. I mean this is just an amazing, amazing character. And um the, I was so impressed by that from the very beginning and the fact that he took this question of life after death seriously and absolutely argued that it's the most important question of human existence. And so I was persuaded by that. And at the end of The Republic, there's this story about a man who was believed dead and in battle. And um, sometimes later when they were getting ready to conduct the funeral, <coughs> excuse me, he spontaneously revived and sat up <coughs> and told the story of going into this other world, and um, in which he left his body and he went through some sort of passageway into another dimension, and he saw his life in review. and uh, And I quickly learned that these experiences, that the ancient Greek philosophers called them revenants, people who were believed to have died and returned, um, that they were a big part of the origins of the Western way of thinking, because that was one of the things that these philosophers were very interested in and tried to explain. And um, so then, in that context, three years later in 1965, I heard from one of my professors that dr george ritchie who was at that time a psychiatry professor at the university of virginia had um, some years before been pronounced dead twice uh and with no uh, nine minutes apart with no intervention in between and uh yet um was uh, i verifiably, vibrantly alive man. And so I took that opportunity to hear Dr. Ritchie talk about his experience in 1965, and it just totally changed my life because of the platonic aspect of it, the fact that Plato and the ancient Greeks were aware of these things too, and then the fact that right there was this really wonderful man. I mean, even after all these years, I can really say you know the finest person i ever knew and uh so since that time i you know it just from then on it's really uh, i got my phd in philosophy at the age of 24 which at that time sounds pretty uh uh impressive i suppose but to somebody my uh age of 67 i can look back then and say oh that poor young man i mean you know it was uh something (laughs) deeply wrong with somebody who would have a phd in philosophy by the age of 24 and that was the truth and uh, and you know just living especially in the 60s
0: i'm sorry especially in the 60s
1: well yes it was you know forget the marijuana and so on or lsd i was uh i was um you know thinking about philosophy problems and writing a doctoral dissertation on the um, the meaning of proper names, the topic in philosophy. So, yeah, just totally in my head. And um, then went on to be a philosophy professor for three years and uh, then went back to medical school in 1972 and um, then graduated in January of 76 from medical school. And uh, so by that time, I had two doctoral degrees, a Ph.D. in philosophy and an M.D. degree. Uh, Plus three years of being a philosophy professor under my belt, and I was 31, and so you're even more now getting the picture that this was a, you know, I mean, just a severely off base or out of kilter kind of life, Um, and uh, and and you know, I'm not. Saying that is a mea culpa. It's really just, I think, an accurate description. Of, um,
0: well, you were also you were also struggling with an und- at that time undiagnosed and very debilitating uh, disease called myxedema.
1: Yes, which is profound hypothyroidism. Uh, I was diagnosed with it in 1985, and um, and the. Um, in the retrospective review of my medical records, they found in 1966 an illness that had been unexplained, which they could tell from the symptoms and all had been autoimmune thyroiditis or Hashimoto's disease, it's called. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it went <coughs> undetected for almost uh, 20 years, and during that time, I, uh, you know, the intellect kept going. It was the emotional side of life. I, um, people with hypothyroidism, and many of them are listening, I'm sure. I mean, this is just such a common thing. And it's a very unusual experience because you – the way I talk about it is, as I say, it's almost like if you could imagine being in a um, big vat of gelatin, And except the the gelatin is finely granulated with things that feel like almost little grains of sand. And that your whole day is spent sort of literally splashing through this stuff. I mean, it keeps, it's, um, it just is very weary. And I was always cold, always tired, but just kept on working, of course. And not, you know, there's nothing wrong with me as the denial mantra goes. And uh, I remember reading about uh, um, hypothyroidism in my second year of medical school, and I read the symptoms, and it said um, people with um, hypothyroidism are always cold and always sleepy, and I thought to myself, wow, that really must be terrible because I'm always cold and I'm always sleepy, but there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, so it, the disease really does take away your insight, too, because uh, yeah. at the height of the edema, it I think it's maybe, you know, not quite a, a accurate um, analogy, but something like Alzheimer's disease, and it's like a dementia, and uh, your cognitive faculties slip. But the nice thing about it is once you start taking the thyroid replacement hormone, then... Um, you put right back up. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, in, in an ironic way, it was this disease that led you um, to actually experience your first near-death
1: experience. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you look into the medical textbooks about mixed edema, one of the features you see is suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. Because this is, uh, I mean, it's an organic condition, but it makes you very depressed. And again, to, to show, I think, the incredible um, denial, I guess, that was going on in my mind, I used to teach at East Carolina University, and I had this friend who was in the political science uh, department uh, called John East, and he and I used to sit around and talk. And uh, then subsequently... Um, John uh, became a uh, United States senator from North Carolina, and to my horror, one day I um, picked up the newspaper and I found that he had committed suicide in Washington. I think in his garage, and the background was uh, the uh, you know profound hypothyroidism,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and um, and even that wasn't enough to yeah you know, I just. It's, um, to make the denial. penny,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But then I finally just got to the point, and I'll tell you the truth. One thing about this memoir that I think is, is pretty interesting is that Paul Perry, my uh, co writer on this, is a very modest person and so on. And, you know, he wouldn't want to say this, but the reality is, you know, he, I mean, he's just so humble and modest, but he, uh, in, in reality, um, Paul served partly as my prosthetic memory in this because, uh, and as anybody with this, with illness will tell you, it, it really does, it just wipes out your ability to pick up new information or remember things when the mixed edema is so fierce. And, uh, so during that ordeal, in which I just seemed like every day that things were coming apart, and I, so, so, uh, I did attempt suicide. And came very close. I mean, as a matter of fact, it's amazing that I lived. And, uh, you know, it wasn't one of these things where I was hoping to go to a blissful afterlife because to tell you the truth, this afterlife thing is not... This took me a long, long time to come to terms with. And I can honestly tell you, up until about three years ago, um, I really just didn't know. I mean, I don't think that... The rational case can be built up to the point that, you know, we could say that this is evidence or proof or anything. But um, it, it how should I put this? I just never was convinced. To me, this has always been very counterintuitive. And so when I made that suicide attempt, I was not trying to go to another after, to a blissful afterlife. I was trying to get away from this one. And I still tell people, quite truthfully, I am not afraid of death. It's life that scares me. There's plenty of scary stuff in life, and I'm just not afraid of death. But it was an attempt to um, escape, I think. And, um, yeah.
0: One of the the hallmarks, I think, of your work has been this rigorous scientific approach and, and this... Um, Almost religious skepticism, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the reasons that it has been accepted by the mainstream, because you don't come from a kind of an airy, fairy uh space. Um, you, you simply collected at a, <laughs> a very early age, mm-hmm. um, stories uh, that people have recounted of their own experiences and, and you can take it or leave it. And what's interesting yeah. in what you say is that basically you have left it on, on a kind of a side shelf in your consciousness still observing it still being skeptical until very recently
1: oh yes yes absolutely because it's a very foolish thing to do to venture into the biggest question of existence with you know trying to make it true or to try to arrange your mental equipment so that it turns out to a desired answer or so uh, i want to know what is and um so I was a professor of logic. It was logic and philosophy of language were my areas in uh, philosophy. In ancient Greek philosophy, my period. And uh, logic to me is just logic is a spiritual discipline. It really is. To me, if you are, and difficult. I mean, this is, it's a, you know, you have to be very careful. And... um so that's the only route available to me to understand about this, and so it just—it's a long time it took for me to sort of run out of um, ways to think myself out of it. Or and and you use that word skeptical, yes. I I really rue as a as a lover of teaching ancient Greek philosophy. I really uh, am sad when I um. See these organized skeptics, as they call themselves, banding that word around. When really, uh, what this kind of field needs is a genuinely skeptical, and, and what that means. It was a it was a school of philosophy formulated by uh, Pyrrho, uh, some years after Alexand- I mean, after um, Aristotle. Um, uh, formulated or codified logic. And what the skeptics ask was when Aristotle taught us a set of procedures for drawing a conclusion. So then the skeptics ask, well, then what if you don't draw the conclusion? And, and their way is to not draw the conclu- draw conclusions, but just sort of keep throwing every objection. You can think at something. And that's always what I've done. And, um, but but, I think also that um, paradoxically, then I do think that we're in an era where the um the question of life after death that will open up to genuinely rational investigation, and by that I mean i don't mean like pseudoscience or you know people saying oh we're going to do a scientific experiment and so on that's that's really a, logically incoherent when you get down to it because the question of life after death doesn't yet have the Necessary characteristics that it could be um, uh, confirmed or disconfirmed by the scientific method. So, but but that's a liberating thing because the the real question here is logic, as David Hume, my, another of my great heroes, said. Hume was a uh, great thinker about uh, uh, well, he was partly had to do with the origins of scientific thinking. He uh, made points about the inductive logic used in science and also explored the concept of causation in science. And Hume pointed out very um, eloquently that um, the real problem here is that the logical code that we use for, um, for uh Think, you know, thinking about other things doesn't work in the question of life after death because technically, it's a self-contradiction to say there is life after death, right? Because you're just death just means the final, irreversible cessation of life. So there are major problems there, and I think Kant got it best when he said that this this question is going to await solution until we can have a what he says a um, an some new system of logic, he says, and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. Well, what I am I'm confident of now is that that problem has been, been solved. We do have essentially new, untried, um, purely rational, I mean a rigorously rational means of investigating this question now.
0: Oh, I want to hear all about that, but I just want to let people know if they've joined us that this is New Consciousness Review, and we're chatting with Dr. Raymond Moody about his book, Paranormal, My Life in Pursuit of the Afterlife. Okay, we've just gotten to the point where you said that there is now a logical way to approach this. Tell us about it, please.
1: Well, absolutely, and at probably everybody read or heard in school a little bit that uh, the, that Western logic that was uh, formalized or codified by Aristotle is a binary opposite code, right? It's like either true or false. And, and the, a logic is a system of rules and procedures where you can go from one statement or premise to some other Statement, the conclusion, if you follow the rules and so on. And um, when it gets to a self contradiction, therefore, uh, logic, real logic, has to give up because that's one of the conditions that's precluded in in Aristotelian logic. And so, uh, what people in many areas of investigation that run into these problems have have always said they needed is an is a three-valued logic. And the third value is unintelligibility. In other words, there's some sentences that are either true or false. Um, there's a badger living in my garden now is either true or false. But other sentences, you just can't tell. Like when they're, it's um, holiness pursues the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity is perfectly in order grammatically and so on in all the words makes sense, but it it doesn't add up. And so, what I've been doing, and this is a project that I've been doing since um, 1963. It was part of my doctoral dissertation in 1969, and uh, basically, I have worked out the logic of, of uh, sentences that may be very important, but that don't, you know, that don't make sense within the framework of uh, true or false literal meaning and um so, about three years ago, I sent this out to a bunch of scholars, um, none of whom had any any interest in the afterlife but they were uh friends of mine who were professors of engineering and business and uh uh psychology and logic and you know just and, and had the characteristics they're very honest and you know i asked them specifically to find any flaws and so they were you know they came back unanimously uh, that i'd onto something so on that basis i think that we have turned a corner and we've kind of opened up a crack in this afterlife question and that we can now pursue it with a new set of rational principles that we can continue to apply uh, apply even when the the thing that we've come up with is unintelligible or, uh, so that's how it works and one one specific um, implication of this for the question of life after death is that if you um, if you prepare people and in, a, in advance know in you just teach them this new system of logic it's not anything related to life after death the purpose of you of learning this logic is to just to give you a new set of critical thinking skills and so on and to open up a, a mental power that we kind of didn't know we had and um whoa, whoa, whoa. you're you're
0: you're if you're losing me you're possibly losing some of my listeners um you're you're saying that this third state not neither positive mm-hmm. nor negative but unintelligible um, is the key to understand? To, is it to understanding or to suspending disbelief?
1: I think it is really the key to understanding because um, if you think about the situation, if you, it, it turns out, I would, it, this would take a long time and boring argument to to establish. But it turns out that if someone has this logic in their mind prior to having a near death experience. Then when, you know, by chance, subsequently, they do have a near-death experience, then it turns out that they that they uh, don't have the same kind of trouble that people do with what is called the ineffability problem in near-death experiences, and that is that no matter how articulate they may be, and I hear this from people all over the world, however well-educated, they say in one way or another, I just can't describe it to you, that it's beyond words. So what this is, is a, a sort of way of getting around that. And it's a, a work of mine that's in progress now.
0: Okay. Well, can you apply it to your own near-death experience? How, how would you describe your own near-death experience? And I can't describe it doesn't work.
1: Well, that's right. I just... I, I, first of all, want to acknowledge that I didn't get as far as many people do. I mean, I've heard a lot of stories, and some people only have a little bit of it. Some people have the whole full-blown picture. I didn't get very far. What I say is that I I didn't really get in, but I got to the city limit sign. I could see the city limit sign, in effect. And the best way I can describe it to you is, That at this point, as you're going through the dying process, you become aware of this world dividing into two. It's almost like uh, layers, layers of reality, which is something I've heard from a lot of these people, that you actually see different zones and so on. And um, I didn't really have an out-of-body experience per se, but but I know that I was in that process where if this had gone on anymore I would have. Because the the first thing that happened was that the world was dividing into what I would call a you know, I mean here the words fail again, but it's it's basically like a a physical domain. And then you see this other domain kind of Connected with it, but not of it. And you see these two zones actually separate. You really can see that there is a difference between this uh, realm of matter and stuff and bodies that we live in and some other state of existence that's not grounded in that sort of thing. But, And what I would best say would be a... Um, An informational format I know that's gonna but you know this may sound bizarre but I think more and more people are going to be driven to this analogy because um, about some years ago I was in LA walking through a shopping mall and I saw my very first television uh, a high-definition television and I thought when I saw that I thought oh my god that looks more real than real, which it really does. If you inspect the image closely, it looks even more real than your ordinary waking experience. Mm -hmm. And what that reminded me of is that that's exactly what people with near-death experiences tell me. They say that that when they go into this other world, it's not like a dream state. It's not dreamlike at all, but that it's, um, it's more real than this that we're in. And so subsequently I'm curious about that, and I asked my friend who's a television expert, I said, Why is it that the um that the image on that screen looks more real than real? And he said, It's because the amount of information that's on the screen is too much for your mind to process or that there's more information on the screen than your mind can process, and that strikes me as something like what happens with these people. And and um, it's really interesting. The the changes and so on don't take place like they do here. I mean, um, as I've had gout today, I've you know I had to move my body around kind of like it was uh, an encumberment or somebody's possessions that I was moving from room to room because I you know I can't get around um and but but not in this other state it's more like um you formulate the notion of what you want to do and this system kind of automatically adapts to it it's it's, it's just really, really remarkable.
0: So we hear a lot about, uh, in fact, last week I was interviewing uh, somebody who published the Seth books who was famous mm-hmm. for uh, saying that we create our reality with our thoughts, that our thor- thoughts are mm-hmm. incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. And yeah. um, you, you've also done some experiments somewhat along those lines with your psychomantium
1: well i have you know and this too is a great example of how these amazing ancient greek philosophers i mean the um uh socrates for example one of the reasons why the greeks executed him is that they accused him as as uh they did all philosophers of uh being involved with these so called oracles of the dead psychomanteons and or or places where you would go and actually have visions in which you would seem to see and converse with a departed loved one, and um, this is in Herodotus, it's in Plutarch, it's in Aristophanes. It's just rampant through the um, through the ancient Greek writings. And um,
0: can you just well, describe one?
1: Yes, uh, basically, when one was excavated back in the seventies, what they found was this uh, huge underground complex with dormitory rooms and corridors, all opening out into this 50-foot-long hallway in which they found a uh, bronze cauldron, a big bronze cauldron. And uh, the it, it setup indicated that this is where people saw the visions. This was underground and complete darkness. And they found the uh, carbon marks on the walls where the torches had been in antiquity. And um, so... Uh, When I read the archaeological report, although the archaeologists hadn't picked up on this, although later I brought it to their attention and they they enthusiastically agreed, but I figured out what this is is that they still do this in the Middle East today. They'll take, for example, a uh, silver bowl and they highly polish it on the inside, fill it up with olive oil, and by candlelight in a darkened room, many people see these vivid, moving three-dimensional, lifelike images. And, uh, and you don't feel it's under your control. It just seems to happen. And so I knew that's what it was. So in 1990, I, I set this up for myself and it works. All, all I did was to uh, create a room in my house which has a four-by-four wall mirror on it. And uh, in front of that, I put a comfortable easy chair where people can lean back and be you know, very relaxed. Behind that, I put a little light bulb with a dimmer switch on the circuit, so that the person sitting in the chair can adjust their the light to their own comfort level. And then this room is totally dark. And so in 1990, I started. um, My volunteers were my graduate students of psychology and. um, uh, some medical colleagues and so on, who got interested in what I was doing, and I asked every one of them to choose some one person who had died that they wanted to see again, and then they would come to my place one at a time for all day this is a um, you know this is a lengthy process, but I would just ask them to talk to me about the person who had died that they law, you know, that they were coming to see, and uh, to bring back all the memories, to talk about the good points and the bad points of the relationship, then after a long period of this, you go and you put them in this room, and under those circumstances, about 50% of them, on the first attempt, will see vivid, lifelike apparitions of their departed loved ones that give them a vivid sense of presence, which surprised me. I really didn't anticipate that this, that people would, you know, take this to be a real event, especially since these were psychologists and, you know, doctors and who had some education in the mind. But people do. They really, they interpret it to be a reality. And sometimes the visions of the deceased will actually seem to emerge from the mirror and come out into the room and talk. And I think it's said about Thirty percent of the people who go through this actually talk about hearing an audible voice—the uh, audible voice of the deceased. But almost all the rest of them say they didn't hear a voice, but it's like they um, have a um, uh, like a sense of communion or heart to heart or mind to mind.
0: Telepathic thing.
1: That's how they they relate it. Yes, mm. and. Um, so I've, then, uh, this is—you know—it's easy to imagine that one person like me is, is a madman. But uh, subsequent to this, uh, back about 15 or so years ago, I started teaching it to psychotherapists. And um, some years ago, about 15 years ago, Arthur Hastings, who is a pro- professor and I think director of the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, and Palo Alto, California, near San Francisco, and he came and he he sent a couple of people to learn how to do it, and they took it back to the ITP, and now they actually have incorporated it in their curriculum for their psychotherapy PhD students, and because um, whatever you may make of this from the causal explanation of what it ultimately means i have no idea myself i mean it's baffling to me because i just did not anticipate anything like what it turned out to be but um that aside we just you know maybe not able to say what it means but that nonetheless it it seems to be very helpful to people who are go, going through a grieving process so that's why i uh, Dr. Hastings and the people at ITP, I think, have um, done a lot of this and actually published papers on their findings too, which is pretty much identical to mine. Because I mean, this is this is not anything to do with layman Moody. This is this is um, to do with human nature. People have uh, always done this. The archaeological evidence for this sort of thing goes back. 10,000 years to any
0: other. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And you did say that there were, like, uh, these apartments where people kind of remained underground in preparation for going yes. to this. Oh,
1: yes. This was, you know, this would not be a good place in antiquity to take a busload of tourists. <laughs> you know, who wanted to get on to the gift shop because this, it was supposed to be an ordeal. They, they located it at very remote places where you would have to you know, have to make a pilgrimage and a real commitment to get It's like
0: there. the Native American vision quest, isn't it? Oh, yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. And uh, matter of fact, uh, that's right. An archaeologist told me that very thing. He thinks the Anasazi, for example, um, did this. And uh, and and it's in South America, all over the world. And, you know, it's incredible to me that it's a fact. I mean, it's a psychological reality that many, many people are always just saying, oh, if I only had five more minutes, you know. That, number two, literally since before the ancient Greeks, there have been a Western tradition of doing this. Mm -hmm. take people through a procedure which all the
0: you mean five minutes with the with the person who's paused yes Uh
1: and that that nonetheless this has remained underground for so long and it's a very powerful
0: way of resolving uh issues that are bottled up in grief and i think that's how you've been using it haven't you
1: yes yes absolutely and um it's um As I said, my motivation was to understand um, the earliest events of ancient Greek philosophy, which it really helped to do. And uh, then I found, as I'm sure the Greeks realized, that um, it does help people to have this availability. So so they would take these uh, pilgrimages up to this place, and then they would have to live underground, complete darkness, for 29 days before they went into the, central apparition hallway and so i suspect that under that kind of circumstance everybody would have you know a visitation because uh, Mm -hmm. in that much preparation and i'm sure they knew how to do it after a continuous tradition of over a millennium where they did this.
0: uh well if you've just joined us we're speaking with dr raymond moody about his book paranormal my life in pursuit of the afterlife um, you, you've also referred to these um, events as facilitated apparitions.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, is there any overlap between one of these and a near-death experience?
1: There absolutely is to in this respect, and that is that over the years of doing taking hundreds of people through that, a few of the people that I've taken through it were people with, who previously had had near-death experiences or near-death experience in which they had had an apparitional visit with a lost loved one and then came to my facility many years later and had uh, an you know, apparitional visit with a departed loved one. And when I asked them to comment on whether it was the same or different, they said it's the same. mm mm-hmm yes yeah, so in that sense i think that it's probably uh, at least it's it's connected i think to to the near-death experience
0: now uh, I, i've heard about this this book heaven is for real by todd burpo mm-hmm. and it's almost become a craze so why yeah. do some people have explicitly christian experiences of the afterlife like meeting jesus with angels and wings while others have more general encounters more mm-hmm. kind of uh well
1: I, tell you you truth. I don't know about that work you're talking about so i won't make a comment about that but let me make a more general statement about what you just asked and that is that i will give you a not not at all not to paint everybody with the same brush by any means but some years ago this, you know, fervent, uh, uh, flame-filled book came out alleging that, uh, you know, at least half of the people with near-death experiences have a hellish death experience. So when that came out, a friend of mine um, uh, who is a conservative Christian, his name is Michael Sabom, and he's a Cardiologist in Atlanta who has uh, studied near-death experiences. I guess since 19 early, late 76, 77, or whatever. So a long time. He's just many, many people who've uh, with this. And so he was astonished when he read this. And Michael was just very, very a uh, nice guy. He, he, he just uh, he was just baffled. Like my goodness, how do I account for this difference in this man's? rendering as opposed to mine and so um he called up this man and he said the man immediately started backtracking and saying oh well i actually didn't talk to all of them i saw some of them on christian tv and so on and then uh subsequently another book came out from this thing and then the same stories were all changed around and then i read in another book by the the group that characterizes themselves as Christians, that um, he was quoted as saying, "You've got to scare people to convert them." So, my point is here, not, not not to point, you know, paint everybody with a broad brush, but you know, we both know about the editorial process and all that goes into that. I mean, you just, I, I don't take. I wouldn't take something like that seriously just because I read it in a book. I would actually want to talk with people. How has the
0: field, how has the field of near death research changed? But I mean, really your, your books almost bookend uh, the, the, the field starting with life after life when you were just out of diapers.
1: Well, I think one regrettable thing that happened is that this, kind of experience has been sort of um, taken up by the pseudoscience what I regard as pseudoscience of parapsychology and uh, I just think that's incredibly naive that it's really the question of life after death is the most important question of existence and all and so therefore not yet a scientific question and so I that to me is something that is regrettable uh, that has happened in terms of things that have happen that are positive i think this really has to do with the liberation of people who have such experiences because when i used to do this back in the 60s and so on it was people were just very very you know they were timid about talking about this because they didn't want to be judged and so on but now we're out of that because um Uh, you know there have been so many studies as to establish very clearly that whatever this means it's something that happens to a significant proportion of people who for example are resuscitated from cardiac arrest so it has a profound clinical significance and also I think a spiritual significance and so um, that I think is the good thing that has come out that it's people are more open to probe and explore now on this rather than just uh, to exclude it from uh, rational analysis.
0: Well, you say people are more open uh, yes. to, to to share their experiences and in fact uh, I've had a number of interviews with people who have had NDEs and I have one next week with an amazing um, report uh, Anita Morjani, I don't know if you've heard of her,
1: but her, yes, I have, I have. Mm-hmm. Her book was inc- I heard from her just I heard of her just the 30 minutes before you called. Uh-huh.
0: You must read her book. It's called Dying to Be okay. Me and definitely listen in next week. Anyway, um the, the 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 place that you seem to be coming from is trying to um make scientifically irrefutable the reality of near-death experiences. And at some stage, there is this kind of leap of faith or empirical experience that has to happen. If so many people are reporting such similar things, uh, you know, there there must be something there. It reminds me of what Larry Dossey said, something unknown is doing we don't know what.
1: Yes, exactly. And I do think, I mean, this is, what I'm all about is trying to find out what is the reality on this, and I'm still open to that, although I have reached the point where I just don't have any other way out of it but to say, my God, there is life after death. And concurrently with that, I think that this new um, set of logical principles will enable us to carry the investigation on in a genuinely rational way to to places that it hasn't been before so i really think that in the next few years the the rational investigation of the afterlife if i can put it that way will be a, a very different field with whole new um uh procedures and ways of exploring this question
2: mm-hmm.
0: so where do people find out more about you
1: well, that thing on America's Most Wanted—that was just <laughs> so. I would say maybe my website, www.lifeafterlife.com.
0: Lifeafterlife.com, uh, excellent. Yes,
1: and uh my current project that I'm really enjoying is that I put uh, I'm putting uh, seven courses on DVD so that I can. Fulfill my dream of staying at home with my kids while I can project my electronic presence out across the world. So we have a lot of students signed up for that all over the world. And so, and
0: what are the courses about?
1: Well, the first one is is uh, uh, just called. Uh, it's basically on near-death experiences and uh, and and the. Um, the rational obstacles to thinking about that, and then the second part is is an entire course on the ancient Greek philosophers and how they studied life after death, and then the third point on uh, the third and uh, fourth uh, courses are on an entirely new set of concepts for thinking about this, and uh, it's... Um, uh, just uh, really not not an exaggeration, I think, to say that it's a kind of new system of logic. Then the next course goes into the anomalies of the mind, you know, like what is a hallucination, what is a delusion, All and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. And how we can discriminate this kind of thing from a spiritual experience, which may be a very genuine thing. And then from that it goes on to various theories of the paranormal. And then it brings it back in the last, uh, course to a thorough investigation of the question of an afterlife that brings these entirely new principles of logic to bear to actually make some headway.
0: Well, I think by the time we finish that, you ought to also give us PhDs. It sounds like oh, a whole yes, oh, yes, education. Absolutely. In a box. Well, thank you so much. Um, That uh, will be found on lifeafterlife.com. And we have been speaking with Dr. Raymond Moody. I want to thank you so much for being with us, Raymond.
1: Oh, my goodness. Thank you. This has just been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: And next week, please join us when our guest will be Anita Morjani, author of Dying to Be Me. I hope you'll join us. We're going to close our show with the track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association, a growing group of musicians who use music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. This week we're featuring Everything But You by Carol Logan. d yeah. But you, by Carol Logan. Carol was a Broadway singer, and now she's an interfaith minister and the music director for Sacred Center, New York. You can check out Carol's page on CD Baby. Her name is spelled L O G E N. For more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. To discover more fascinating books, films, authors, and events, check out our website at ncreview.com. You can connect with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ncreview. And if you enjoyed our show, I hope you'll tell your friends. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.